We have been going through a series called Punk God and looking at different aspects, particularly of punk music, to open a window uh, for us to see the gospel of Jesus, the good news, uh, from a different perspective to help us open our Bibles and see themes that maybe we haven't seen enough, maybe that we have neglected uh, in these, these instances of Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, uh, the incarnation of Jesus becoming man, God becoming man, and the crucifixion that we just read, and narrating those things through this idea, this lens of those being very punk events in history, maybe the most punk, and that's a bit of a hard sell. And we're looking this morning at a band, uh, at least is not looking uh, in an exegetical way at their lyrics, but reading them to give us a new perspective. And we had a, a church camp out a few years ago, and we haven't done that in a while. I don't know who headed that up, but maybe we should again. But one of my sons invited um, a friend of his to come to that camp out. And He thought that it would be funny to try and be a little bit antagonistic to this church group. He wasn't a churchgoer. I don't know if he'd ever been to church, but he assumed maybe that we were a little square, maybe we were a little little, uh, sheltered, something. I don't know. But he wore his favorite uh, Bad Religion t-shirt. And if you know this band, uh, it's a punk band, and they do their concerts oftentimes with a picture of the cross with a big red circle and a line through it. So they're notoriously not only anti-religion, but they're anti-Christian. Well, he wore this T-shirt expecting to get a certain response, and he wasn't there five minutes before one of the elders said, hey, cool T-shirt, I love bad religion. That was like one of my crowning achievements and proudest moments about in town is that there were enough people at that camp that not only knew who bad religion was, but actually listened to them and could converse with this high schooler. I loved it. If he was wanting to press some buttons, our buttons as it were, he picked a good band. And this, uh, this song, Skyscraper, is a retelling, a re-narration of the Tower of Babel story. It says, come, let us make bricks and burn them hard. That's basically lifted right out of Torah. We'll build a city with a tower for the world and climb so we can reach anything we may, we may propose, anything at all. I know why you tore it down that day. You thought that if you, if you got caught, we'd all go away. Like a spoiled little baby who can't come out to play, you had your revenge. Well, madness reigned, paradise drowned when Babel's walls came crashing down. Now the echoes roar for a story writ that was hardly understood and never any good. It's a little bit different perspective than we normally hear the Tower of Babel story told from, right? This song presents God not as the hero of the story, but as the villain, as if God gave the human race great potential And when they use their creative potential to build and to grow and to create things, that he came and tore it all down because he doesn't want us to realize too much of our potential. Just use a little bit. And maybe that's easy to dismiss. Well, that's Old Testament, and 
God was kind of grumpy in the Old Testament, and we are Christians. We live by the New Testament. But think about the common articulation of the quote-unquote gospel, the good news. If you hear it told in a common way, it's sort of like God made the world good, but humanity messed it all up, and now God is really peeved. And He has consigned every man, woman, and child to an eternity, a physical torment in hell unless they believe in Jesus. And then they get to go to heaven and live in unimaginable pleasure for all of eternity. The reward, by the way, of a very microscopic portion of all of humanity that has ever lived. And so, invite Jesus in your heart so you can be one of those people. Now, that's a little bit overcooked and a little bit of a caricature, I admit, but that is the common idea of the presentation of Christianity that most of our friends and neighbors and perhaps you and some of the teachers that you may listen to give. And so, it's no wonder that we have bands like Bad Religion and no wonder we have people like Greg Graffin that want nothing to do with Christianity. It's not good news. It's a story of condemnation. And if you mess it up, if you get out of line, then God stands waiting to come down and bust some heads. Yours might be one of them. (laughs) The Bible gives us this foreboding sense, does it not, that humanity is on thin ice and that God is against us. He's angry with us. And so we're using punk to see our own story a little bit better. We're looking at using punk to see the incarnation. That is, what did God set out to do in sending Jesus? Was He to make good on that promise that He's good and angry, and He comes with rage and He comes with wrath? But thankfully, Jesus is here, so invite Him in your hearts. Is that what's going on? I would submit to you that what God is doing in the incarnation is that He is moving into the world to uproot the powers and the principalities who stand over His vulnerable creation and stands over the weak and the poor that keep His creation from living up to His potential, from living up to who they are made to be that keeps His creation in a state of futility and keeps His creation in a state of dying. And we read Malachi, and it's a very interesting passage. God promises to send this enigmatic figure, this messenger, to where? The temple that we talked about the last couple of weeks. And at least for now, there is, in fact, a hint of judgment, a hint of that makes people nervous. Verse 2 says, a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap, who can endure that? Who can stand? But think with me for a minute, if you were paying attention as it was read, who is in danger here? Who is the judgment upon? Is it all the bad people out there who don't know Jesus? Is it all the pagan world? And so long as you're inside the doors of the church or Israel, as it were, then you're fine. No, quite the contrary. It's the Levites, the most holy people of Israel. They're the ones who stand to be judged. Because why? They were tasked to mediate God's presence to this 
exiled people that had been rescued out of Egypt and are now receiving God's care. And the Levites were the priestly class that was meant to mediate that relationship, to mediate the law and the instruction so that Israel could know how to live. And then Judah, which is the larger group of Israel separated. They were called to depict God's redeeming justice, His redeeming presence in the world. So it's not the judgment that we would normally think, given our kind of common cultural conception of Christianity, that God is good and angry at all the pagan people, and any minute the floodgates are going to open. The judgment here comes at the holy people, or the people particularly that were holy in name only. And notice this. Notice the sins listed. Why is judgment coming? With the possible exception of sorcery, all of the listed sins are social evils. I will be quick to testify, God says, against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, those who defraud laborers, those who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive foreigners of justice. You see, in God's mind, the liberators, that is, the nation of people that He has called to be His specially loved people, that are then to liberate others, they have become the oppressors. And those who are those classes, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, they don't have a safe place in Judah. They're religious in name only, and there's nothing that punks hate more than hypocritical religion, than people defrauding and exploiting the weak. And so should we, as a matter of fact. You see, throughout the history of Israel, and as it's true in the church today, the people that were meant to receive God's love in their midst for the benefit of others, they take God's presence, they take the signs of His presence, and they use them restrictively. They, they use them exclusively and oppressively. The recurring judgment in verse 7 is ever since the time of your ancestors. This book was written way late in the Hebrew Bible, way late in Old Testament history. And what the writer is saying is all the way back from the very beginning of Israel, you guys have misused my love for you. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. God cares, you see, so much for the poor and the weak that no one who oppresses his little ones should consider themselves safe. And yet, yet, there's always good news because the verse immediately previous to that says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants, you see, of Jacob, so you are not destroyed. I'm still faithful to this people. Joyce Baldwin, who's an Old Testament commentator and writer, she says this translation is rather tame, that it doesn't quite depict what's going on. And she translated it as the Lord saying this, I, the Lord unchanging, 
and you have not ceased to be sons of Jacob, despite how you have misused my presence, you have not been orphaned. What God is saying is that even in your worst moments, you have not exceeded the boundaries of His love. There's always that critique, that judgment, along with that invitation back. Turn and be my children. You are my children. Act like it. You see, He shows up in His temple not with rageful power, not with coercion, but He shows up in loving kindness. He shows up with the invitation to be truly who they are, that is, His loved sons and daughters. So maybe the story of the Tower of Babel isn't quite what bad religion makes it out to be. Maybe when God shows up, it's not to undermine human potential. Maybe humanity is not actually at its best when we're building monuments to ourselves. It's not about using our creativity. It's about using our creativity out of self-importance instead of caring for one another, instead of living up to our human potentiality of caring for the people that God cares for. Now let's fast forward a number of centuries and fast forward to our second reading, the one in Mark, because Mark tells the story that this Redeemer, this messenger actually is present. He did come, and He shows up, and there's not a celebration. There's not this gladness that now the Prince of Peace has come. In fact, the most unlikely of allies, the religious people of Judah, of Israel at that point, and the hated Roman oppressors, you see, they team up against Jesus. They team up against this messenger. The disciples turn away at various times, and even the two criminals that Jesus is crucified with turn against Him and begin to mock Him. At least one does perpetually. All are lining against Jesus. So that in verse 29, Mark says that those who are just passing by hurled insults at Him. Everyone that was around was mocking Jesus. Something about Jesus challenged the very way of things. Something about, about Jesus challenged the way that society was structured that kept the Roman authorities and the religious elite in league with one another, so much that they used their hated allies to hold their place in society, and Jesus threatened that. And so they killed Him. But we can't just impute our guilt away to them because, what does it say? All passers-by hurled insults. And I think what Mark is trying to tell us when we read that, he's trying to say, you reader, you fit into that category. Were you there? Were you invested in the way things are? Then Jesus would challenge you as well. Something about Jesus bumped up against everyone's way of being. 
And it should bump up against ours regularly. Even if we've been at church regularly, we should still encounter Jesus and say, wow, the way that I'm living, maybe it reflects more about the world that I inhabit rather than this radical way of giving up everything for the poor. Verse 29 says that they were hurling insults at him along these lines, that you who are going to destroy this temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. They're taunting him in reference to what Jesus is quoted as saying in the Gospel of John, that you tear down this temple in dual reference to this edifice and also to his own body, and I will raise it up in three days. This temple, which was a sign of God's blessing and His presence and His mission to the world, that they are His family and they are His loved ones, but that they are to be a house of prayer for all nations, including everyone and inviting everyone. And yet over and over, the story of the temple was so different because it became a sign of privilege. It became a sign, a way of defining the us's over and against the them's. The temple is for us and our ethnicity and our tribe, and we are safe inside it. It became then a sign, and not only a sign, but an agent of exclusion and exploitation, as we read last week, and of just control. And it was used to say that we are the favored, we are the faithful, we are the loved ones of God the temple was used to be against. And Jesus says this temple that now resides in Him, that He is the temple, that He embodies everything that God was about, everything that the temple was meant to be, and yet He refuses to be against. He refuses to align Himself with the tribal identities that were warring with each other. He refuses, refuses to be co-opted into the societal hierarchies that existed. And he challenges everyone. Instead of aligning people to be against others, he becomes the ultimate scapegoat for everyone's againstness. He becomes utterly vulnerable and weak those people that God wants us to care for, if you wonder who they are, look at Jesus because He becomes like them in every way. He becomes poor and weak and vulnerable. He becomes part of the underclass. He becomes a traveler, a sojourner, an alien. And He does that so that He can absorb all of our againstness, all of our violence and all of our rage all of our defining ourselves against the other, and all the death that we can hand out. He comes to absorb it. And all this, you see, throws everything off kilter. The status quo isn't sustainable if masses of people begin to buy into that because it doesn't simply heal people's individual spiritual sickness, but it begins to heal the society. It begins to bring people in from the outside, from the margins, into 
God's places of presence. And that throws everything off because, you see, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, and that seems so palatable, when that neighbor is the slave, when that neighbor is the prostitute, when that neighbor is the orphan, that's very threatening because it gives them status that was reserved only for the elite, only for the Romans. The most unlikely of allies aligned that day, conspiring to maintain the status quo against Jesus. And Jesus refuses to legitimate their hierarchies of control. And more personally, He refuses to legitimize our team against the world. He refuses to legitimate any way that we choose to be us against our neighbor instead of us for our neighbor. God comes, you see, to the temple, and on one hand, there is this judgment present because He comes and He says that everyone is implicated. All of us mock Him because He upsets our apple cart. He throws the status quo off, and we've got to reckon with that. All of us are implicated. Those passing by hurled insults but also everyone, all of us, are equally included, equally welcomed, equally invited in. You see, God comes in the incarnation not to be against but to be for, to show humanity the way to flourish, the way to live out their potential, ours. He comes to be for us, to rescue us, to scoop us out of the way of death and of againstness, againstness. God so, friends, God so thoroughly loves the world that even when we wreck it, He still wants relationship. He still offers reconciliation. Instead of holy rage, He comes in weakness and He comes in death to liberate us from all the false stories that we tell, uh, tell ourselves where we are on top, all of the false narratives that we live by that keep us in control of our world and that establish our self-worth to those near us and even to ourselves. To knock down, you see, not the towers of human ingenuity, but the towers of human self-importance and self-reliance. Jesus dies to scoop us into another story because even if we could build a tower to the sky, we wouldn't find God there. We wouldn't find God at the top of that tower looking down on humanity, hoping that we don't get too smart for our own good. Instead, we would find the tower inverted, and it's the tower that God comes down Instead of requiring us to climb up, He comes down, He descends. You see, the punk God comes down to overthrow every authority that holds us captive, especially the final authority that holds everyone in this room captive. No matter what you think of Christianity and Jesus, we are all held captive under the authority of death. And Jesus by dying a punk's death on the margins, he comes 
to say to death, your reign is over. So let's live into that life and into that hopefulness. Let's be punks for the world. Let's pray. God, I pray personally that as we have gone through this series that whatever bit of irreverence has been a means to an end, a means to help us to see you in all of your righteousness and goodness and holiness and that you make room for all of us to tell jokes and to tell humorous stories and to be a little bit irreverent, especially with ourselves and how precious we are towards some of the things that we have in our lives and even in the church, and that maybe every Sunday we need to be challenged and we need to have our apple cart, especially if it's an apple cart of theology by which we think we are safe. We need to have that turned over. And I pray that in a large way that you would use whatever irreverence is in this sermon series to do that, to shake us, to make us alive, to radicalize us, we pray, so that we can be for the world as you intend us to be. And we pray in your Son's name. Amen.